Greetings, and welcome to episode 32 of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. With Kara Furman, I'm Derek Gottlieb. To bring the year to a close, we decided to invite two doctoral students in the field of philosophy of education, whom we know as voracious and wide-ranging readers, to talk to us about the things that they have enjoyed reading the most, over the course of their graduate classes in the field, over their post-secondary coursework more generally, over the past year as a whole, and so on. Recognizing great and meaningful work that we've enjoyed seems like a fitting way to bring the year to a close, and we hope our listeners find the recommendations helpful and interesting. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome. It is great to see both of you. Good morning. And if you could both introduce yourselves, and Addison, could you start us off? Uh, thank you, Kara and Derek, for inviting us. Very excited to talk with you all, uh, with Kirsten as well. My name is Addison Fertura. I am a PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia, originally from Wisconsin. And I'm very excited to talk about reading. And I love reading. I think that's part of the reason I'm in grad school. It's it's a large chunk of time to, to read and think and read in community. Um, and my work is on school expulsion, any kind of exclusionary punishment, and I'm writing a, a philosophical, phenomenological, and descriptive uh, dissertation on school expulsion as exposing an issue of freedom. So a lot of interesting works to read there. So thank you. Great. And for listeners, they weren't able to see this, but Derek is very excited that Addison is from Wisconsin. So I just thought you all might want to know that. Um, there you go. And I will turn it over to Kirsten, who actually, um, just to get one on Derek, is studying next door to where I grew up. So there you go. Kirsten, why don't you introduce yourself? <laughs> uh, my name is Kirsten Gianco. Thank you both for having us on. I am a third year PhD student at Boston College um, and am also still actively in the field of, of teaching as a curriculum coach in two different schools. Um, and so I'm really excited to, to be a part of this conversation and think about how philosophy of education and what we're all reading on this call and other people are reading um, intersects with what teachers are navigating on, on the daily in their classrooms. So Derek and I, in hatching this um, podcast for today, we're thinking about what to do as a holiday special. And I think both of us um, are people who like to be gifted books. And I will turn it to Derek to explain the reasoning because it was largely um, his idea here. Uh, well, thank you for throwing me under the bus, Kara. Uh, we, as we were talking about off air just a second ago, uh, the reasoning behind this episode largely comes down to, you know, starting to see a lot of the sort of like best of year in review sorts of lists and wanting to provide something similar to that uh, for our listeners. But at the same time, and I know that this is a gross romanticization of the graduate school process, which, if I am honest with myself, was somewhat grueling and all that kind of stuff. But I uh, I, I like to remember it as a time when I had a a great deal of time, I feel like, and energy to read widely. I was taking courses not only in my like in my narrowly defined program, but more broadly across university offerings. And uh, and so I, I wanted to my thought was to uh, invite some folks on who I know read very widely and study very widely uh, and are in different graduate programs across the country and find out what is going on in these programs and uh, what your own personal interests and recommendations to our audience are. This is also, I might as well just say, partly motivated by being on uh, or having been a couple of times now on the program committee for PES and starting to get like a little bit of I won't say that I I can tell from a given submission that I am looking at a graduate school submission and or identify the specific place that people go to school. But I've started to notice that like clusters of citations, you know, come up that are like relatively unique. And so my impression is that people in different programs are being assigned different potentially interesting works. And I wanted to sort of surface some of the, the variety that, uh, that, you know, we're experiencing, uh, in our field. So that, that was also part of, part of my motivation in, uh, in pitching this idea to Kara essentially. So with that in mind, 
all of that in mind, let's get right into the sort of like questions that we very loosely drafted. Kirsten, can I start with with you and ask uh, just very basically what is, in your opinion, the the best book or book excerpt that you've been assigned as part of an you know explicit philosophy of education course or more generally a philosophy course over your graduate experience uh, to date? And you know, feel free to take wide latitude with the valorization best. Yeah, so I took uh, Dialogue, Recognition, and Transformation with Chris Higgins at Boston College. Um, and we read Epistemic Injustice by Miranda Fricker. Um, and it was one of those books that like, I just couldn't put down. Um, it felt like it connected with so much of what I was trying to understand around the field of education and what's happening currently with teachers. And so as I was reading that book, it's not written around education, right? Um, and she doesn't necessarily talk about teachers, but in what she was talking about when thinking about testimonial injustice, being wronged in the capacity as a knower or hermeneutical injustice, not having the access to interpretive resources to make sense of your experience and articulate it. Um, it connected to what I was trying to understand about how teachers are being perceived in the media and public discourse and how teachers engaging in research is something I'm really passionate about. And how does that provide more structured and, and wide access to the interpretive resources that might be needed to talk back to some of that public discourse. Um, so that was definitely one of those books that was in a philosophy course. It was not specific about teaching, but I just could not stop making the connections to teaching and what I was thinking about. Excellent. Thank you. It's so wonderful to encounter work that, like that, that just lights up the area that you study in a, in a way that maybe the author didn't even anticipate. Addison, uh, Similar question to you, and by similar, I mean identical. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, just kind of uh, working off of Kirsten, I think that's one of the beautiful things of the educational field and philosophy, and then the two combined, is that it's such a broad scope of different disciplines and traditions and histories, so there are so many different genres and, and types of texts to read. Um, for me, I, I understood best in terms of something that provoked something or expanded something for me and often best in the sense that I found it frustrating or invigorating in a very curious way. So when I was in my master's program at UBC, I took a introductory course on, I think it was more so framed as educational theory, but it was taught by Sam Rocha. So it was definitely philosophically based. And we read Between Past and Future by Hannah Arendt. And I'd never read Hannah Arendt before, and I know she's quite large in philosophy of education and political philosophy and elsewhere. And her essay in that book in particular, What is Freedom? The very opening line where she writes, um, to raise the question, what is freedom seems to be a hopeless enterprise. It was the very first sentence of the essay. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Um, and then I found the essay really beautiful and also frustrating because she starts with this idea of it's really hopeless to question freedom. And then she goes on to question it and say, but it's necessary to question it in politics. And it's this problem of freedom. Uh, and that essay in particular prompted my master's work and then also incidentally my doctoral work as well with the concept of freedom from an American sense, but trying to disentangle it from uh, libertarianism, but more so with freedom in the sense of abolition and political philosophy. Uh, so that book in particular prompted a lot for me, but also I, I, for most of these questions, I have an honorable mention because it was hard to choose just one. Um, so then for my doctoral coursework, I chose Teacher Stranger by Maxine Green. I had a class on phenomenological research and we read Teacher Stranger in and that sense of uh, the existential and phenomenological and literary uh, understandings of a concept like freedom or teaching practice was really powerful to me. And I really appreciate Maxine's Green work in particular and how she weaves in um, different literary texts and fiction uh, as part of her research. Awesome. Thank you very much for that. That's powerful. I, I also recently came to our rent, like relatively recently, and have been similarly impressed. I actually entered into philosophy of education through a book. So although it was not assigned in a philosophy course, I'm going to Addison echo what you did of an honorable mention, which probably makes a lot of sense that I was taking a philosophy course with him after this, but reading The Good Life of Teaching 
by Chris Higgins is what actually really drew me into philosophy of education because I hadn't had any formal courses or readings around it before. And reading the chapter on Hannah Run is what brought me into more specific conversations. So it's great to get to hear how the connections are made across texts and how we build off of them. That's great to hear. Um, so the next question I have is the best assigned book or reading you've encountered through coursework that you've taken outside of an explicit philosophy course. And Addison, you want to start there? Sure. Um, so I, I actually, if it's okay, I'm, I'm going back to my undergraduate courses. I've had a lot of really great assigned readings in graduate school, but there was one that was has been very prominent since uh, my undergraduate program at University of Washington. I was in a program called Comparative History of Ideas, which is considered intellectual history and literary studies and philosophy. So this may be considered a philosophy course, but it wasn't strictly categorized as philosophy. Um, that was also where I took a full course on Nietzsche, and I, I really disliked uh, everything we did and read. And then later in graduate school, I read Nietzsche again and then actually wrote with his work. So it's interesting also to see transition over time with text when you come back to something. Um, but in, in my undergraduate program, I was taking a class on love and attraction by a professor named Philip Thurtle at University of Washington. And we read a novella by Clarice Lispector uh, called The Hour of the Star. And I think it's one of the most impactful readings I've ever had um, in the sense that it really sparked something in me. Um, I thought it was really philosophical and really literary, so I tend to reference it in some of my writing in philosophy of education. Um, it's a very elusive and confusing and beautifully written text with a lot of topics about life and humanity and what makes a person a person and a full personhood and you have to be seen and recognized to be considered um, human. So I found it deeply philosophical and it was a really impactful one for me in terms of reading it and experiencing it and also the discussions around it. Um, and it has been, uh, Clarissa Spector has been an author that I come back to and read her short stories and other texts throughout um, the past decade or so of my education. Thank you. You know, Addison, I, this is cheating a little bit, but, um, and I don't know which category it goes in for you or even if it's still interesting for you, but um, I'm interested in how you bring or brought in Frankenstein into your philosophy of ed work. So maybe it's coming up, but would you be able to talk a tiny bit about Frankenstein? Just because I think that's a really fascinating text that's not typically in the canon of philosophy of ed. Sure. Um, I actually, um, there was a course that I took that I was thinking of um, as an honorable mention for the best book that I read in a course outside of philosophy. Um, I read, uh, or I took a course, it was a little more philosophical, but it was on humanities-based research with Sam Roach at UBC. And that's where we read Frankenstein. Um, we read The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter, Woodson, Carter G. Woodson. We read um, Letters to a Young Poet by Rainier Marie Rilke. Uh, a lot of humanities-based text. Um, and in that course in particular, Frankenstein and The Miseducation of the Negro were two prominent texts for me that have been very enveloped in my work. We read Frankenstein in that class, and um, I remember reading the the moment about Justine where she um, accepts the punishment even though she knows that she didn't commit the crime, and she accepts it so that she'll be welcomed back into the community. And I was curious why that wasn't a moment that was more jar jarring um, and that we didn't speak about necessarily. And I know Frankenstein is written about a little bit or quite a bit in education and philosophy. Um, and so that's kind of how it initiated is uh, I read that book in that class uh, for uh, another time, a second time, and then came back to it in my writing because that moment of punishment um, and accepting a punishment in order to maintain one's sense of self and sense of community that um, was really resonant with, with me and the work that I'm doing. Um, so that's how Frankenstein came in, into my work. And for listeners really briefly who, like me, um, encountered Justine in your writing and thought, I have no idea who this character is, even though I've read this book multiple times, who is Justine? Um, Justine is a young girl in Frankenstein um, who is friends with the, the young uh, brother. And she, um, the, the monster um, 
places the blame on her for killing um, the young kid. And so that she re- receives all the punishment, um, she's put to death. Um, and then Victor Frankenstein and uh, his sister go to visit her. And Victor Frankenstein knows that she's innocent, um, but watches her through the trial. And, and no one in the community stands up for her um, because she's positioned as this monster and evil. And so she's given this framework and she almost, um, there's a point that really stood out for me where she says that she almost begins to believe herself to be the monster they said she was. And that moment of, I think that goes also back to Carter Woodson's miseducation, that sense of almost believing yourself to be a monster that society has made you to be. Um, But Justine, yeah, she's, she's quite a small character, but I find her to be one of the most remarkable and one of the most redeemable characters in, in the entire novel. Thank you. Thank you also, Kara, for for raising that particular issue. Uh, at the 2022 OVPES conference, uh, Amy Shuffleton invited Eileen Hunt from Notre Dame to be uh, to deliver the keynote address. And I, I suspect, though I don't know this for sure, that like Amy's connection to Eileen was through uh, uh, Hunt's work on uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, which is an area of overlapping interest for them. But her last three books and the topic of her OVPES address was Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. And it's like uh, her last three books are like Mary Shelley and the Rights of the Child, Political Philosophy and Frankenstein, Pen Press 2018, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, Pen Press 2021, and forthcoming next year, The First Last Man, Mary Shelley and the Post-Apocalyptic Imagination. So, um, this also speaks like I saw Frankenstein come up in several uh, submissions for uh, PES. So I'm I'm excited like like this text is having a moment as as well. Yeah, and I should say I I brought it in by saying it's not widely read in the field, but there there are some really solid um, people who I have read who I love, including Amy has written on um, Frankenstein, and I admire that work. So, Kirsten, the question, just as a refresher, was the best assigned book or reading you've encountered through coursework you've taken outside of an explicit philosophy course, although, of course, they kind of run together sometimes. Yeah, so I took literacy from a sociocultural perspective. Um, So I was a language arts teacher um, and I'm still very interested in what literacy classrooms look like. And so we read Ways with Words by Shirley Bryce Heath. Um, and that was another one of those books that just something clicked for me. Um, and I think in actually it was putting together these ideas of different texts that I'd read that I realized what it was that clicked. Um, and it was that it gave me the interpretive resource to understand something that I was trying to make sense of as a teacher to go back to thinking with Miranda Fricker. Um, and essentially what that text did for me was thinking about how teachers as ethnographers um, or taking ethnographic lenses to their work can really think about how to bring the full humanity of their students into the classroom and how to honor and respect that. And so through reading that text, I was paying more attention to the particulars of how students were using language with their families when they were picked up versus using language with me and how I could facilitate a better bridge between those spaces um, and how that might lead to the classroom space being a more welcoming environment for students to really flourish. And so that text both helped me understand uh, Something I was seeing, which is that the way that I was talking was not always getting picked up by students and helped me figure out why that might be. At the same time that it introduced me to the power of teachers, not only as researchers of their own classroom spaces, but really of being inquirers into the broader landscape that their students are living within. And so that's one of those texts that really, it wasn't in a philosophy course, but helped me bridge it. I'm going to turn it to Derek in a second, but it came up in one of my courses recently. We were talking about publishing and this was with doctor students and how much people cite or read people's writing um, and the sort of lament that people don't necessarily read a huge amount of scholarly writing. Um, and in that course, I was sort of, 
trying to be optimistic and or I was feeling optimistic and I said yeah but you know where our influence really is is actually we're teachers and and as teachers we touch a huge amount of students and I'm thinking about that as both of you are talking because you're bringing me through memory lane of all of the books that I read from undergraduate through my doctoral program and I had the luxury of being able to study with Maxine Green. And I took a course with Richard Bernstein, who studied with Hannah Arendt. And so just thinking about these legacies and how most of the texts you've read are ones that came up through my education as well. And so we really have the power to keep canons going in our classes, but also we have the power to change canons, um, such as bringing more Frankenstein in. The more people read it, the more that canon of what philosophy of ed could be changes as well. So... That's my optimism or something like that. But Derek? For sure. There's uh, also, uh, <clears throat> Kirsten, the, your your particular interests uh, and that particular text really resonate with a lot of the work that I see my own doctoral students doing, like at, at, through no, you know, encouragement of mine beyond, you know, the state, like I'm not pushing them in that direction is what I'm trying to say. But uh, so it's fascinating to hear that overlap. I hope that that too is having a moment. And with respect to the thing that Kara just said, for the last episode that uh, that was released as of this recording, I tried to say something about, you know, the 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 the, the practices of philosophy that don't necessarily make it into uh, public the public record or publications. And the thing that I left out of that little thing was precisely the role of teaching in this. I was I just came across an article by a guy whose name I can't recall right now, called The Conversationalists, which was focusing primarily on a guy named Burton Drebin, who taught at Boston University and prior to that, Harvard, who published like one thing in 1954 uh, with Warren Goldfarb and like a couple of book chapters here and there. And gone are the days when like you can have a tenured professorship anywhere and just publish nothing. But but like it was striking to see how much effect that like or how much influence, how much impact on the field and the way that people thought about particular authors he had. And uh, Thompson Clark, who was at uh, Berkeley, had despite not publishing at all. And it certainly helps to be like institutionalized at a Harvard or a Berkeley and teach like the people who are going to get the jobs and do a ton of the publication uh, in the field. But I said I, I realized that like my sort of bone deep inherited interpretations of various, you know, canonical philosophical figures really come from him and not from the people that I tend to cite a lot about him. Like they are just referring to, you know, educational experiences or classroom experiences that they have had with this person who would otherwise vanish from, you know, the, the official record of what philosophy is. So thank you also both of you for uh, bringing those to the fore. So I think the next question is the best academic or scholarly book you've read outside of assigned coursework in general in pursuit of your own projects or interests. So what are you reading kind of on your own or not directly related to stuff assigned? And also, how did you come to that? That's another yeah. sort of question. Kirsten, do you want to take this first? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so I am going to talk about The Ethical Teacher by Elizabeth Campbell. Um, I was asked by a school, um, an elementary school, to work with their kindergarten to fifth grade teachers as they take a scripted language arts curriculum and modify it so that it aligns with anti-bias education and particularly learning for justice standards and create a curriculum map that captures those modifications. So uh, a really big and important task um, that I was hoping would be collaborative. And as I was sitting down to think about how to frame this project to the teachers that will be involved, I couldn't stop thinking about the, the ethical ramifications of this type of curriculum map, because by the nature of changing a scripted language arts curriculum to align with learning for justice standards. There's certain decisions that were going to have to be made that were going to illuminate voices and decenter other voices. And how, as a group of uh, teachers and a coach, are we going to make those decisions? And so 
I turned to Elizabeth Campbell's work to think about professional ethics and thinking about teachers' ethical knowledge. Um, and so through reading her book, I was thinking a lot about how can we debate the ethics of this curriculum map to come up with a collective mission and a collective um, compass as we're making decisions within each of the classrooms towards this collective goal. Um, and how do we take both our knowledge as teachers around practice and our ethical knowledge to make these decisions while considering that the curriculum is both educative and moral. Um, and so her text was really helpful in giving me language to use with teachers when having these really important conversations before diving into the work. Thank you. Um, and Addison? Uh, Kirsten, that was interesting uh, that you mentioned the ethical teacher. Um, I read it recently, a couple years ago, and uh, I teach as a sessional instructor at UBC in the teacher education program and the adult education program, and I teach a class on ethics and teaching, and I've assigned a section of that book um, along with Nell Nodding's and, and other senses of ethics and care and teaching and um, their own uh, teacher code of ethics and having those conversations. Um, and I noticed that the ethical teacher was... It seemed to be quite helpful for students in having these conversations and also dealing with the messiness of ethics and the internalization of this idea of a, a goodness of a person. Like you can, it's not about being a good person, bad person, but dealing with these ethical dilemmas that are human and happen and teaching and learning all the time. Uh, so ethical teacher, yeah, I second that. Um, and in that class in particular, students, I think, have a a hard time navigating ethics as they do in practice as well, as we all do in life, I think. Um, and so I usually end that class by reading a poem as another reading by Mary Oliver Wild Geese. And she starts that poem, um, you do not have to be good, you not, do not have to crawl on your knees. Um, and so that idea of it's not about the goodness, but the ethical teacher by Elizabeth Campbell is fantastic. So that wasn't my book, but just echoing <laughs> Kirsten. Yeah, fantastic. Um, did you have something? Yeah, the when you were bringing up Nell Noddings, it made me uh, think about, I had recently read um, a piece by Roland Dow about critical care and kind of building off Nell Noddings' work and thinking about how, if we're going to ethically care for students, we need to think about the structures and systems in which they live, um, which I think gets to, right, the, the messiness of living out professional ethics, right, because there's structures and systems the students are living within schools. Um, and so... I've been trying to pair, uh, as an honorable mention, thinking around critical care with the ethical teacher. So um, it's I'm glad that those two are being brought into conversation in, in your class. It sounds like a great one. Yeah, this is great. I'm realizing I know this podcast episode is about us discussing our readings and the canon and talking about the field. But I'm also generating a really wonderful reading list of yeah, my same. own from... <laughs> All is being shared. Um, and that's the great thing about reading is it never ends. Um, in terms of the question, the best book that I've read outside of my coursework um, and maybe how did I get there? Uh, I think thinking currently about things that I've been reading and, and working with um, for my dissertation, I think the most impactful one has been uh, Black Reconstruction in America by Du Bois and also um, his books, uh, The Souls of Black Folk. In particular, his uh, the only fictional piece in The Souls of Black Folk, which is of the coming of John, um, which I work through in my dissertation and a descriptive analysis of many moments and modes and experiences of expulsion in regard to um, experiences of people who are black in the US and any kind of racialized expulsion. Um, and I came to Du Bois from working on school expulsion and punishment for a few years, and then it becoming very obvious that I couldn't do a project where I was talking about school expulsion that wasn't deeply attentive to race and racialization and its impacts on punishment in the U.S. And so I went to Du Bois for that to, to get um, some philosophical and historical work within uh um, race and expulsion and identity. Um, and I think the interesting thing about the canon with philosophy of education is it seems that we, we often read folks who are in the black intellectual tradition and in abolitionary traditions um, and in critical theory traditions like Du Bois and James Baldwin and Audre Lorde. Um, sometimes we, we might read fiction by Toni Morrison. 
Um, we might read poetry by Langston Hughes. And so we talk a lot about Du Bois and Baldwin and, and other folks within the Black intellectual tradition, but I don't see it as commonly analyzed and referenced and worked through in scholarly work in our field. So that's an interesting thing with the canon is it's, it's really a part of our conversations and our coursework, uh, but not necessarily part of our research, which is interesting because um, Du Bois, it's not like he wasn't ever a part of the canon. He's always been there and he's a prominent part of things, um, work that came after his time. Um, it's just that I think we have been a bit neglectful <laughs> um, in our canonization there. So maybe similar to, to what Kara said of, um, there's a, a important tradition with the canon, but it's not that we can't work within um, and outside of the canon. Um, and I do wanna say also that it, um, Du Bois has been really impactful for me, but I also read a lot of fiction and poetry and memoirs that are really nourishing and fruitful for me as a thinker, as a person and navigating the world. So um, a lot of work by Claudia Rankin and Chen Chen and Hanif Adirb-Kib and Ross Gay. Um, Chen Chen has a book of poetry that I read a few years ago, and it's the best title I've ever heard, the best title of a book of poems called When I Grow Up, I Want to Be a List of Further Possibilities, um, which really contrasts uh, something that we do in education where you ask students what they want to be when they grow up and they have to be a thing or, a, or a something in the labor force, but not a person. Um, so when I grow up, I want to be a teacher. A teacher is a beautiful thing, but they don't get to be anything beyond that. Um, so further possibility, I like that idea always more. Kirsten, do you want to chime in? And then I want to add something into one of your points, Addison. As a quick personal aside, um, I have a 18-year-old brother, and he's graduating high school. And we were talking about graduation, and he was like, I just... I don't know what I want to be, right? Because people were asking, where are you going? Um, and I turned to him and asked him, uh, okay, but who do you want to be? And my brother just looked at me with like this, like very blanket face of like, what are you talking about? Um, but felt like my philosophical side <laughs> come out in that interaction with the siblings. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Thank you. So I want to add one thing to Addison's point about what we talk about and maybe even some of the books we share informally and then what makes its way into text, because you mentioned that anecdotally. And I just want to say, having done some literature reviews around that topic, not not necessarily things I've published on at this point, it's not just anecdotally true. It's actually true. Um, for example, if you look up um, uh, Bell Hooks, whose name comes up all the time and is cited for all kinds of reasons, and you look her up across the philosophy of ed, typical journals, there are, at least a few years back when I did this, there's one or two journals that she's tangentially mentioned as a citation in the journal. There's nothing where, there's nothing that I found where she was the title or the focus of the essay. She's sort of brought in as like a side citation. Um, and I think that's true of a number of the scholars that you've looked up. So it really is... Um, not just anecdotally a feeling, but it, it is a truth that this is happening. Um, and when you write for philosophy of ed journals and you feature scholars outside of the typical canon as your primary focus, in my experience, a response can be, well, why didn't you bring in XYZ person um, who's the more established philosophy of ed person in it? Um, or what is that person doing in this essay um, as a review? Or is this really philosophy? Maybe this goes in a different journal. Um, and that's not usually all the reviewers, um, but that often is a reviewer. And so I think it's just worth naming that um, publicly. And a way that I get back at that now, feeling more experienced, is to say, um, you know, Paulo Freire is in this essay, he just is. <laughs> um, he's important to the essay and that's why he's here. Um, or to give a, in the revise and resubmit, give an explanation for why I'm centering in the ways that I'm doing. So not, not necessarily bringing in other people or saying like this other established scholar is just not in this essay and I'm not interested in placing him in the essay just because you've asked. So there's ways to push back on that too. Um, but yeah. Yeah, can I add on to that yeah. a little bit? I find that most of my strategy with respect to 
responding to reviewers who are asking questions like that. I, just most of my responses to reviewers in general, um, I'm often very grateful to reviewers for pointing out various things that are helpful to me and helping to articulate the point more clearly, etc. But I find comments like that uh, less helpful generally. Things about like trying to like, can you fit this more narrowly into this box that I think that this uh, should be fit into? And the majority of what I do in responding to reviewers is sort of to take, like, I keep in mind that I'm writing for the editor who's going to ultimately make the decision about whether to include this piece or not. And I end up so formulating an argument to the editor about it always helps me to be like, yes, points A, B and C are really good and well taken. And here are the changes that I've made in order to accommodate those points, D, E and F or whatever. I don't find to be particularly helpful. Here's here's why the essay looks the way it does, blah, 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 blah. So keeping in mind the fact that I'm not talking to the reviewer directly, though I often wish that I were and uh, speaking to the editor instead and simply defending the paper as uh, or like the decisions that I've made that I think are defensible and don't need don't need to respond to this comment, you know, substantially and particularly not make changes to what I've done simply to appease this one reviewer. I it's been my general experience that editors, my general experience that editors have sent the piece out for review because they think there's something there and are more than willing to listen to uh, pushback uh, of that kind. I will also just say thank you to Addison for raising the Du Bois issue and pointing out how commonly Du Bois in particular shows up on in official curricula in philosophy of education, in colleges of education in general, and yet how um, how how thin the kind of engagement with Du Bois's actual work can sometimes be in in the work that we do. I uh, I will never get tired of recommending Melvin Rogers's Dark and Light of Faith, which I have definitely put in the chat. Melvin Rogers being the Neller lecturer at this upcoming PES and uh, a political theorist at Brown. It's it's a brilliant book. He is one of the few people that I know who is simultaneously like a Dewey expert and a Du Bois expert. And uh, in conversation with him, I got to like I wanted to ask him a really technical, nerdy question about like a straight up philosophy question. I'm like, how do you think of uh the relationship between habits in the way that Dewey formulates them and habituation in the way that Du Bois formulates them. I like I, I was like, could you explain that the distinction there uh, for me? And his answer, like he was taken aback and he was like, I, I think they're the same thing. And that was mind blowing to me and might be relevant to our listeners in general. There's JDS uh, is has a call for papers out. Uh, Submissions due January 1st for like uh, the the call is about critical pragmatism and trying to make pragmatism like Dewey and pragmatism a little less white and conservative, I would say. I mean, I don't want to put words in their uh, mouth in particular, but um, hearing Rogers's response to that question, I was like, oh, like maybe it is just not strictly speaking in Dewey or not in Dewey in the way that people tend to look for that. kind. Of, anyway, I am now off on a tangent of my own. Uh, let me transition into a uh, into our sort of fourth question, which is, you know, to the extent that this is different from anything you've already mentioned, what is the best thing that you've read this year? Something you'd recommend to others in our field, something you might wish would come up in our conversations within the field more generally, um, regardless of whether you might think of this as, you know, scholarly or or not. Addison, can I can we start with you this time? Yes, um, I really love this question. In particular, um, I feel like I have, as a student and a scholar and a teacher and a person, have been navigating this question of: Is this for philosophy, or how does this constitute itself as philosophical research, or is this even educational research? Um, and then that's a, a secondary layer of um, argumentation and um, supporting evidence and trying to support your work as what it is. Um, which I think a lot of scholars have had to do. Um, but with that, um, in thinking about what counts as philosophical work, the, the two things that I wrote down for the best things I've read this year, I consider them deeply philosophical work, and they're both uh, collections of poetry. And I consider them very philosophical in the sense that um, 
histories of philosophy have come from story and fiction and poetry. I mean, um, the Odyssey is an epic poem. I mean, and that's widely cited as part of a philosophical canon. And so it's not that poetry and fiction and literary works are irrelevant. They're often the primary basis for many philosophical works that have emerged. Um, so that's just my argument for poetry. Uh, but the two poetic books that I've read this year, um, one is called Why Did You Leave the Horse Alone by Mahmoud Darwish. It's translated from Arabic and he was a Palestinian poet. Um, and so I've been reading a bit more um, works from Palestinians. Um, and this book in particular um, has um, English on the left side for the poem and then um, the Arabic um, poem, original poem on the right side. I don't read or write Arabic, but it's, I think, really impactful to see the original language and script of it and then the English translation. Anyone who is concerned or cares for humanity and um, Palestinians and Gaza and any um, experiences of genocide and human suffering in the world, I would recommend this book of poems. Um, poetry is often a really significant place to go um, in terms of human suffering. So why did you leave the horse alone? Uh, the second is a book of poems by a student that I taught three years ago in teacher ed at UBC. Um, she's a poet and she is an English teacher, secondary school in Vancouver. Um, she's Cree and English. And uh, she wrote a poetry book called Undoing Hours. Her name is Selena Bowen. And it's a poetry book uh, about identity and, and working both through English and the Cree language and uh, herself learning Cree um, as a young person in Canada. Um, and so that's a really fantastic book as well. Um, it came out a few years ago, but I've just fully sat down and read the thing in its entirety. Um, and it's a fantastic book of poems for anyone interested in indigeneity and identity and personhood and language and education. And it is a poetry book written by a teacher. So I think it would be well-deserved to be assigned in teacher education, philosophy and courses. So Undoing Hours by Selena Bowen. Thank you very much. Kirsten? It's... Uh... So I'm surprised that we didn't talk before because of how uh, beautifully this this leans into uh, the one that I wanted to bring up and feels like I maybe didn't take as much creative liberty as I thought I did with the this could be scholarly or not. Um, so in building off of what Addison is talking about in regards to fiction being the basis of or can be the basis for philosophical conversations, um, what I was going to bring up was actually the genre of contemporary young adult fiction. Um, and particularly the book Answers in the Pages by David Levithan, um, which without giving spoilers for the amazing twists and turns that happened during the book, the, there's three different storylines and the one that I just want to give listeners a little bit of context for because it will explain why I think that book is so important is that it takes place in a fifth grade classroom where a mom sees a book that the student is reading and at the end of the book it's questionable whether or not the two male characters are romantically in love and she sees this book and she challenges the book. And through this storyline, you see the child, Donovan, really grappling with how to respond to this situation because his mom is the challenger. Um, he loves his teacher, who is a, a gay man that assigned this text, and he's trying to grapple with how to navigate the situation at the same time that the teacher is has dialogue speaking to the students about what it means to challenge a book in our democratic society and how this book can be challenged but he then intentionally places it on his desk the, all of the texts that have been collected from students almost as a sign of solidarity and so I view this book as something that's really important for us in philosophy of education or books like it to read because it provides the basis of a fictional account to to think with and ask questions around what is or is not ethical in a situation or how teachers might navigate these types of situations. Um, and we actually talked with teachers in relation to this book in a book club. It was uh, myself and I uh, can't talk about it without naming those that were involved, John Wargo, Kyle Smith and Marissa Siegel. And I were involved in a book club with six uh, elementary teachers and they read this book in a context that is not 
favorable or welcoming to texts that feature LGBTQ identifying characters. And they were talking about their own kind of ethical compasses in these moments. And they actually took the book and put it on their desk. Um, And students saw it and had a conversation with them about the text topic. So it became a way for them to think about their own sense of who they were as teachers by talking through this fictional teacher in the text. Um, And so I think it's one way for us to move beyond the, the echo chamber of academia and think imaginatively with these really important topics to teachers. You're bringing me a little bit, Kirsten, to when I was a second year teacher, I did a summer at Breadloaf, um, which is a program that was out of Middlebury. And it w- it's mostly geared towards or mostly it's secondary education teachers and you study literature with a group of teachers. And so I did this version in Oxford and we were studying Chaucer's Canterbury Tales with this um, scholar at Oxford. And it was as far away from what I was doing in the classroom as possible in so many ways. But I remember coming out of that experience, just being amazed at the power of reading Chaucer with other teachers. And when I came back, I started a book club with teachers in my school and we read a broad range of um, texts together for about a year, none of which the the key was that you could only suggest things that were not directly teaching related. And it was just really powerful to have conversations about teaching with those books as the backdrop. So thank you for bringing me to that memory. I also, I mean, I I enjoyed, you know, asking the question in general, because my my impression is it's certainly been my experience, but my impression is it's, it's uh, more generally shared that many of the things that we bring to our, you know, strictly speaking, academic work or our teaching lives come to us from places that are not strictly scholarly or academic mm-hmm. or don't wouldn't count as evidence in like, I don't know, a social scientific sense and nonetheless are meaningful and orienting and serve as guides to our own sorts of interests and actions, uh, et cetera. I was thinking like as you were talking about, you know, uh, various genres of work that are not maybe like primarily academic and at their use in philosophical work. I was reminded of how many times I have like put, like quoted a line from like a sitcom literally <laughs> uh, in, in work that I am doing, which, which is, yeah. So, you know, sometimes those uh, screenwriters just say it pithily. Um, was it last year PS Brian Warnick's, general session paper, did, did he quote Tracy Chapman? He quoted a musician at the beginning of his paper. I think it was Tracy Chapman. I remember. Or no. Oh, that was Claudia's yeah, response. Yeah. I think Claudia Rutenberg. And then, but he quoted a musician. I can't remember Brian's quote. Yeah, I, I can't either. I remember that happening. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We can ask him. But that could be another form of text as well. Lyrics. For sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It also makes me think as I was writing and thinking about these conversations that don't make their way into print. Um, when I was writing my dissertation, I really, really hated writing at that moment in time. Um, and for a lot of grad school, I really hated writing. And I remember talking to my advisor, David, and saying, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm not a writer. And in teaching, you can revise and it's quicker. And this heaviness of writing, I'm really not into. I don't really want to do this. I was being very frustrated with the whole process. I don't know if I vented all of it to him, but I vented a little bit. And his advice to me as I was working on the dissertation is he knew I liked the teacher author, Vivian Paley. And he said, you know, somebody asked Vivian what she reads. And she says that she was reading, reads fiction when she's writing. Um, Hmm. And I, I might be misquoting, but I sort of remember David saying that that was a piece of advice that he had followed. And I know he's a great reader of fiction, um, as is my other other advisor, Megan Laverty, is a fiction reader. And so I think whether or not they cite that fiction in their actual text, the turn of phrase and the way in which they come up with it, I think, um, is part of this. And I'll, I'll just add for full citation disclosure that in a conversation recently with Kevin Gary, he was asking them about how they became such good writers. And I don't know if they answered exactly, but in the same conversation, the fact that they were readers of fiction and poetry came up. And so I just think it it matters that you're a philosopher who reads other kinds of texts as well. 
in many ways, nothing could matter more than that, I feel like. <laughs> so on that front, um, in the spirit, I think you have given our listeners a lot of books to get a hold of in the new year. Certainly a lot of ideas that I have that I want to get a hold of. And um, I'll turn it to anybody else for any last words. Addison, yeah. I was just curious. Um, I'm very grateful, Kara and Derek, for your work in um, in our field and, and teaching and with the podcast that you do and your work in philosophy education society. Um, I actually assign uh, some episodes from this podcast for a Foundations of Education course in teacher ed. Um, they, as a form of text and listening to conversation and dialogue and, and learning how to practice it. Um, but I'm kind of curious if I could turn a question on you both um, in terms of the best book you've read this year, because uh, I, I read both of your work um, and I find it really um, prominent and helpful and inspiring. And it's really important, I think, for young scholars or new scholars or grad students to, to read work of people that they um hope to be like or do similar kind of work in the world. So to see that it's possible. So I'm grateful to both of you. And I'd be curious uh, to hear what you're reading because I will add that to my reading list. As Thanks, well. Addison. That's a generous question. Um, I'm going to pivot it to Derek because he always has citations at his disposal. Well, I take a moment to think, but you can send it back to me, Derek, if oh, you need to. Sure. Uh, okay. I have, I, I'm literally going to have to look up the, the titles of these. So as regular listeners of our podcast will hear me incessantly say, I index academic books. So like I do not consume a lot of actual fiction, period, because like either mm -hmm. I am reading like philosophical stuff or I'm reading uh, academic work, like work that is explicitly academic over a wide variety of uh, spaces. Um, I have a couple of so a couple of books that I've indexed this year that have been really, really uh, meaningful and important. There is like there's a set of three that are more or less unrelated to well, that aren't necessarily explicitly in conversation with one another, except as uh, as they relate to the same topic and they occasionally cite each other. These works are. Aliyah Abdul Rahman's. Millennial Style, Jesse McCarthy's The Blue Period, and Augustus Durham's Stay Black and Die. I just, just purely by happenstance, I happen to index them all, like, somewhere between, like, around September and October, so they all flowed together for me, but these are all thinkers who are working with literary, political, and aesthetic artifacts to say something about the African-American political thought tradition, African-American intellectual tradition uh, writ large. David Temin, if I'm saying his name uh, correctly, this is the other thing about like most of the authors that I index for is that we only correspond via email. And so I'm never quite sure that I'm pronouncing their name correctly, has a book uh, on uh, indigenous political theory called Remapping Sovereignty, which is in really interesting conversation with uh, somebody that is read and cited a lot in our field, Sandy, Sandy Grande, uh, whose read pedagogy is really important. I like I've never known exactly what to think about, you know, the repurposing of the concept of sovereignty for sort of. Um, for uh, for sort of claiming Mar like marginalized identities autonomy and so that that book helped me uh think through it a lot there's obviously melvin rogers's uh dark and light of faith which i've already mentioned and lastly uh jonathan kramnick's um very brief meditation on sort of uh the work of what literature scholars are supposed to be doing called criticism and truth is uh something that i that i think is worth reading there there look at that some wrecks <laughs> thank you you bought me time to google the the full titles of things um <laughs> i'm gonna stick primarily with or solely with fiction and poetry and um i mostly listen to that on audiobook because 
I read for work. Um, I'm in philosophy of ed and then I'm in teacher education. And so what I read for teaching is not the same thing that I usually read for a scholarship. Um, and then I have two little children. So my reading is kind of limited to listening at this moment in my life, um, my reading for pleasure. Um, but books that I've listened to, um, as I was packing up my house to move, I listened to the love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois, which was recommended to me by Doris Santoro, who is one of my favorite sources of book recommendations, um, as well as a philosopher of ed. I admire a lot. Um, I also came across, uh, the poet Clint Smith, um, who book, um, let me just get the exact title. Um, but I just listened to on tape, um, counting descent and a friend of mine, um, Catherine will, who's a teacher educator had recommended a podcast that he did, um, for on being. And I listened to the podcast and thought this is so amazing. Um, and then listened to the book of poetry, which I fell in love with because it's just a fantastic, um, critique of America, a testament to being a black American. Um, and it's also a story of fatherhood that resonated really powerfully with my own experience of motherhood. So it covered all these different bases. Um, and then a book that showed up kind of randomly as a search, um, which probably says kind of what kinds of books I look for is Pride um, by Ibi Zaboy. Um, and it is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice set in Brooklyn, talking about a neighborhood that is being gentrified, um, and the protagonist is a Haitian Dominican. And it really works. Um, it does, A lot of adaptations of Jane Austen feel a little goofy or silly. This is probably the most meaningful adaptation I've read that I think actually adds to the field. Um, and part of why it works so beautifully is because having lived in Brooklyn for many years, I could recognize the context of Brooklyn that she was talking about. And suddenly the tensions of class and pride and prejudice, which have always felt kind of silly because they have servants. And I'm like, you have servants. What's your problem here? I got it. Like I could see what was happening a little bit better. I think in the original pride and prejudice in Austin's context, by thinking about the, the issues in, um, in contemporary Brooklyn. So I really admired that as, um, as a text. Um, yeah, Derek. Yeah. Can I add a, a couple of additional uh, things? So like those the, previously, I just like, hear books that I've indexed this year and encountered them that way. But I, I also read stupidly academic books for, you know, no particular reason or just because I have to walk the dog and uh, audiobooks are a good format. So additional things that are really good beyond those. Uh, Olafemi Taiwo has like two new books out this year, one of which is Reconsidering Reparations, which I think is really powerful and thoughtful. Um, uh, what else was here? Uh, Donovan Ramsey's When Crack Was King is really great. And Jennifer Nash's Black Feminism uh, reimagined, uh, are really, are both really sort of provocative, uh, provocative books that I would recommend to listeners as well. You're making me think at the next PS that there should just be a session of, um, book trading and <laughs> book sharing. And that might, that might be, um, or a meet and greet for new members being like, I am so-and-so this is what I'm reading this year. And, um, would you like to talk to me? Yes. Yeah, that is a great idea. And I echo what Addison was saying earlier of just like, I have so many things to go read now. Um, I appreciate the two of you sharing that. The Pride and Prejudice uh, retelling is particularly piquing my interest. Um, so I appreciate the share. So I think Addison is coming back in for a moment. And then I think it's a good time for us to continue this conversation, um, hopefully at PS this year, um, or one of the regional conversations as well. Addison, did you have one last word to chime in? It looked like you did. 
oh, um, yeah, I th there was a, a fantastic question that I was asked by another grad student at the Bergamo Conference of Curriculum Theorizing in Dayton, Ohio, a couple years ago. And it was a group of graduate students that were English teachers, uh, not myself, but um, the other folks there. And we were talking about books we read. And oftentimes, I think in graduate school, there's there can be pressure, imposter syndrome, or even in um, for faculty as well, just being human um, or teachers, uh, that we may be not as well read or um, expansively read as someone else. And there's some competition there. Um, and I appreciated, I had a friend, Scott Jarvey, um, um, who we've written together and he asked this question, um, what's a book that you haven't yet read that you're embarrassed to say out loud that you haven't read? Not that you should be embarrassed about it, but then we began talking about books that we've never read that we thought we should have read. And mine was A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. And then a couple years later, I eventually read it, but I didn't read it until my PhD. And I know folks have read it a long time ago, but I, that would be an interesting question if there was ever a meet and greet or panel or conversation at PS. Because um, there's so many books that I haven't read or may never read or don't even know of yet. And I think that's an important conversation too. I think that's a lovely, a lovely close. My two most immediate responses to those questions are Staying with the Trouble by Donna Haraway and Gender Trouble by Judith Butler. It seems impossible that I should be in conversation with so many people who are citing those works and that I have not read them. True enough. They're both good. Well, thank you both for uh, taking the time to share all of this, uh, your thoughts, book recommendations, etc., with us uh, today. It's been wonderful talking to you, and I look forward to seeing you at the next conference. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having us. And that's our show. Many thanks to Addison and Kirsten for speaking with us today. Subscribe to the podcast and leave us reviews, etc. As always, send us feedback if you've got it at thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. And to recommend future guests and topics, please use the Google form linked in the episode description to let us know. Addison referenced Mary Oliver's Wild Geese some minutes ago, and it seems fitting in this season of resolutions to maybe just close out the year by reading it into the record. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting. Over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. With Kara Furman, I'm Derek Gottlieb, and we will see you in the new year.